Hi, Andrea. Hi, Austin. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited because it's finally fall out, the leaves are changing, and the weather is brisk. Yes, I specifically love getting the pumpkin spice frappuccinos at Starbucks. Definitely the highlight of my day, especially when I'm studying or grinding for classes. Yes, Georgetown students are also especially excited because we have homecoming this weekend, which is a fun day of school celebration. Yes, I'm so excited. Even though we don't have the best football team, I still have my Georgetown spirit ready for Saturday. And I'm also excited because we have a great episode today with Nia Malika Henderson, who is the senior political reporter for CNN. Yes, I loved our conversation with her, specifically talking to her about what it is like to be a black queer woman in the industry, media industry, and then moving to her covering the Obama administration and then the rise of Trump to presidency and what it was like to cover his campaigns and comparing the 2016 to the 2020 elections and then looking forward to the future of the media industry as a whole, it just was all very interesting. Yes, she has so much insight and experience in the field. It was great to sit down with her. We're excited for you guys to take a listen. so great to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's so exciting. It's like one of the first days of fall. It's like finally getting a little oh, colder. I know. I got my sweatpants on. Yeah, it's it's getting toasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so really excited to have you here today. We have a lot of good questions to ask you. Um, we wanted to just start it off with something fun. Um, you had such an inspirational news career for so many people. Who are some of your biggest idols? Who do you look up to? Yeah. Who made you want to become a reporter? So my mom was actually a reporter. Um, she worked for sort of the local PBS station in South Carolina, had a, her own television show. And, you know, my, my grandmother growing up, she would always say, Mia, you're going to grow up and be a broadcast journalist. I didn't think I w- was going to go into journalism because I thought I was going to be a college professor, but but here I am. Uh, I guess I'm sort of a college professor a little bit, at least for a semester oh, here at Georgetown, <laughs> right? Um, and so, but I think in the business, my biggest idol uh, was Gwen Ifill, who passed away in 2016. She had been a print reporter at the Washington Post and at the New York Times, and then moved over to NBC for a little a little while, and then moved over to PBS. And the first time I was on her show, it was like I'd made it in the business. I was covering. Uh, the 2012 campaign, the GOP primary, covering John Huntsman at that point, and I'd written a, a story for the Washington Post, and so she invited me on to Washington Week, and yeah, it was, she was just an incredible journalist, an incredible person, and I think about her every day. I've got like a picture of her, uh, it used to be on, on my desk, and I've got a, a different version of it on my dresser at home, because she really is my North Star in terms of journalism in terms of being a good person, having integrity, and really, I think, hewing to the idea that uh, there are values that we bring to this job. And of course, there, there's sort of the goal of the objectivity, but there's also the other goal of truth and honesty uh, with our viewers and listeners and readers. And so I just, yeah, my, my big idol in this business. 
I can only imagine what it must have been like to have an idol for so long and then being on her show. <laughs> can you talk about what that was like? How you prepared for it? Yeah. And like the nerves? How yeah, was... I mean, all, all of the above. <laughs> the nerves, um, the shock of getting the call from Gwen Eiffel. And, you know, a lot of times you have to prep before you go on the show with the host or a producer. So I remember doing that in the Washington Post newsroom. And then getting there to the studio and seeing her be the boss of this show, it was just such a, a revelatory experience for me because, to be honest with you, there are not a lot of African-American women who are in this business and certainly not bosses of their own shows. That's changed a little bit in the last you know year since Gwen passed away in 2016. There, there are uh, folks like Abby Phillip and Joanne Reed and Laura Coates and Kristen Welker now who are the head of programs on TV. But back then, particularly in politics, I'm, I'm pretty sure she may have been the only one back then. And of course, I'd grown up watching her and following her and just seeing her on the news. And so, so yeah, it was such an amazing experience. You know, it, as I talk about it now, I kind of want to go back and look at it and see what it was like. And I bet, I, I'm sure, I, you know, I was nervous inside because it was her. But, you know, Gwen had this real great way about her where she was able to put everybody at ease. And that's a rarity in some ways. For, for the hosts, and a lot of hosts sometimes have a lot of nervous energy, and you can feel that on, on the set. But Gwen, very relaxed, and um, yeah, that was an amazing experience. And I, you spoke about Gwen being like one of the first African-American woman journalists during yeah. that time, and you also are spearheading like being a black queer woman in the media industry, and we want to hear about your experience and like what that was like, mm -hmm. you know, in your journey as a journalist, the obstacles, the setbacks that you had to experience through it all. Yeah. So it's interesting because I haven't been out for my whole career and it's hard to remember, but, you know, I was in school in college in the 90s, 1992 through 1996, and there weren't a lot of queer people on campus. I remember there was one guy who, and, and, and maybe a woman too, who was, who was sort of openly gay. And it was just a rare thing back then. So I struggled with that for many years and, and coming out. And then once I entered politics, you of course remember this, maybe, you know, it was sort of a political statement to take a side on gay marriage, on uh, gay adoption. All of those issues were sort of hot button contested political issues. And as I said, I was covering uh, the GOP primary in 2012 and I was working at the Washington Post and there was a woman there who knew I was gay and basically said, you know, Nia, you should stay in the closet because being out, you're covering the GOP primary, this is a contested issue, same-sex marriage, um, you shouldn't come out because being out and being yourself is, is a political statement in so many ways. And so I took her advice and, and I wasn't, I, I didn't come out. And so I'm of course now out, I'm married, I have a three-year-old daughter. And so yeah, it's been a big journey, both personally and professionally, I mean, just in my lifetime, I've seen it sort of lessen in terms of the it being a political issue. It's not as much anymore. It is for transgender uh, Americans, um, which is something, you know, their humanity and their rights are, are up for debate at this point in the way that gay folks were, were, were experiencing that uh, a few years ago. 
And so I've seen the tide change in terms of social acceptance, in terms of professional acceptance. But listen, it's still, you know, you, you know, when you said, oh, you're a black woman, I was like, oh, that's right, I am in this business. And there are not a lot of us, right? I mean, there are not a lot of black women, you know, and there's certainly not a lot of black, I'm sort of trying to count in my head now. Uh, you know, there are obviously some very prominent uh, queer journalists, some of whom I've worked with, Anderson Cooper or Don Lemon, who used to be at CNN, uh, folks like that. Uh, Eugene Scott, who's a really great friend of mine, who's at uh, Axios. But yeah, still some, some work to be done in terms of that sort of rep- representation and inclusion. Yeah, you mentioned your identity being politicized when covering the GOP primaries. I'd be curious to see how that change had differed when you were covering the Obama administration specifically. Mm-hmm. During your work with Michelle, do you think that, that same identity creation was happening in that time? Yeah. Well, you know, so that was what, it seems like a lifetime ago, <laughs> 2008 uh, through t- 2016. And in some many, you know, that was a very unique time right and, and you guys probably I don't know how you were when that was happening but um probably like eight yeah 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 so is that sort of your first big political yes. memory like this is yeah it's the first election I remember yeah the yeah Biden, our Obama like Romney election was like mm-hmm. really one of the first yeah like I remember watching the debates of being really young and right. not really processing yeah. yeah 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 so you know it's so funny I, I think back then in 2008 2012 those uh, back to elections, there was this uh, interest in having African Americans be a part of the coverage, right? And so I was at Newsday at the time, and I was writing and covering, um, and I, I tell people this all the time at Newsday, people thought it was going, because it was a New York paper, people thought it was going to be Rudy Giuliani and Hillary Clinton who were going to be the nominees. Turned out that it was, I got put on, I was sort of the B team, so I got put on the Obama campaign, and because uh, no one really thought he was going to win. And so, yeah, I mean, there was interest in what does it mean that there's uh, this first African American president, first African American first lady? What's the perspective of black women? What's the perspective of of black people in general, young people who were very much energized. I was younger then, uh, or very much energized. So it was a very unique experience, I think, culturally and politically for the country. And so, you know, these different newsrooms, they wanted people who were more representative of the country in this this movement and moment uh, to, to cover to cover this this historic presidency and yeah I mean it was it was fascinating to cover Obama to cover the, the first lady as well and then of course the re-election which was I think was a, a lot tougher for the Obama campaign than they thought it, it would be going in but um, you know I mean the thing is you sort of balance you're obviously a black woman covering these figures who are beloved by so many African Americans I think about my mom my mom has like these little figurines of Michelle Obama and President Obama in her house. My my mother-in-law, they have like magnets on the refrigerator of Obama. But you know, you still keep your objectivity. And listen, I, there were many a times I was in fights with the East Wing and the West Wing over, over things that I was writing critically about the president. And that's, you know, that's, that's my job first. It's not my job to represent black people or represent um, how they feel about the president. It's my job to hold power to account. And he was obviously the most powerful person in the free world. And so that's what I was doing. Yeah. And do you think like the media industry as a whole during that time 
do you think there was an element of covering Obama differently because he was the first black president and the same thing with the first lady? Yeah. Like, was there changes on how news organizations went about covering that in comparison to like prior? Yeah, no, it's a, it, it was, it was more like a pop culture event. And I imagine, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't around when, uh, John F. Kennedy was president, mm-hmm. but I imagine it was similar to that, right? These folks were beautiful, the, the Kennedys and Jackie O, who was, you know, young and fashionable, and the two little kids, uh, John John and Caroline. And so there was a much more, I think, covering them as, as, as if they were celebrities and not these powerful people and the president. And so I think initially, I think it probably was more similar to the way people covered John F. Kennedy. And, and part of the reason John F. Kennedy was covered that way, because it was sort of the golden age, you know, TV was coming uh, about and sort of the images and magazines and all of that was happening at the same time. But listen, I think as, as <laughs> the days waned on in that administration, we were all tough on on Obama. You know, you're not really tough on Michelle Obama because who's tough on on first ladies? But you know, I think to the extent that they may have gotten, and I'm putting this in quote, celebrity type press or good press early on. I think the other side of that is, you know, they were they were targeted as well. You know, and, and sometimes unfairly by uh, more conservative outlets, and some of that obviously had a kind of sexist subtext or racist subtext or both racist and sexist subtext and so um you know i mean i I think people we kind of look back at that era era and and think about the errors really in terms of the coverage and was it kind of too glamorous was did we treat them as, as celebrities too much and i think the answer to that Probably if you're Vanity Fair or if you're Vogue, I am sure, Michelle Obama, I think she was on the cover of Vogue twice. Um, And listen, she's a first lady, that's different. But I remember, for instance, the the New York Times Magazine, as they were being inaugurated, the New York Times Magazine had this huge spread on not Barack Obama, but the people who were working for him. Like it was like President Obama's people and these beautiful photographs, you know, making it seem like they were celebrities and the smartest, coolest, you know, most glamorous people in the world. And and that, <laughs> I don't think we've seen since then and hadn't seen it um, up until that time. And so I do think there probably was uh, more of a um, sort of celebrity gloss to some of the coverage that in the end probably, listen, in some ways backfired against the Obamas and in in some ways led to some of the resentment towards the Obamas, towards people who put him into to office as multiracial, multigenerational coalition. And so we see, I think, in, in 2016, uh, a response to that and the response being Donald Trump. Um, yeah, I think that 2012 was definitely, and 2016 were inflection points in a lot of ways. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you about was, in 2012, you actually ended up covering Donald Trump when he was first toying with the idea of running, <laughs> yeah. so you have, you've been there since the beginning. 
Um, I was curious how you've seen his legitimacy change from the inside of institutional media and how people have perceived him differently and started taking him seriously as a candidate from that very beginning. Yeah, so I was, he, he was traveling in New Hampshire and he was again toying with the idea of running and uh, very much, a, you know, a celebrity then. I think we went to like a crab house in New Hampshire and so I covered him then. Michael Cohen was around, who I kind of know from New York anyway. But again, people didn't really take him seriously because remember Donald Trump, he ran for president before, right? He ran, mm-hmm. ran I guess, on the Reform uh, Party ticket. I, th- I think I've got that right. And so people were sort of used to, particularly New Yorkers, people were used to Donald Trump's sort of games, right? And doing things for attention and being a huckster, for, for lack of a better word. And so, of course, in 2012, he toys with the idea. He's floating the birther conspiracy theories. He gets Mitt Romney to um, ask him for an endorsement, right? So there's a big event, and I covered that uh, in 2012, where Mitt Romney basically goes to Donald Trump, who by this time is the most famous birther, goes to um, Donald Trump and wants an endorsement. Because I think at that point, he's aware of the power of Donald Trump, that he's a celebrity, he seems to have something of a following that overlaps with the kind of Fox News crowd, so he wants his endorsement. And so that, I think, was a real inflection point in terms of the GOP uh, standard bearer at that time, or soon to be standard bearer, kind of acknowledging that there was this other power center that Donald Trump seemed to be cultivating and seemed to be representing. So that was an inflection point. Um, you know, and then in 2016 or 2015, he finally announces, and I remember sitting in the, in the um, newsroom, this was before he announces, because I was at the Washington Post, and I, I was sitting in the newsroom, and there was a reporter there, whose name is Robert Costa, who used to work at the Washington Post, now he works at CBS, I believe, and he's new to the Washington Post, and of course, I'm the grizzled veteran by that point, he's a little younger than me, a lot younger than me. And so he's he's talking in the newsroom about Donald Trump running for president. And in my head, I'm just like, oh God, this guy really, like, how gullible are you, Robert Costa, to really think that Donald Trump is going to run for, we've been through this before. I went through this in 2012, of course. And then he ran for president uh, once before and wasn't successful. And so I don't, I don't think I openly dismiss him in the newsroom. I just sort of internally roll my eyes. And so, sure enough, a few months later, in 2015, I believe it was June 2015, uh, he announces for president. Again, people say, okay, this is, Donald Trump is a bit of a huckster. He's a bit of a, you know, um, you know, he's, he likes attention. And, and we, everybody dismissed it as that. I mean, I think you can go back and you can find clips of Maggie Haberman, who's become one of the greatest chroniclers of Donald Trump in, in, in journalism, she's on one of the Sunday shows and somebody talks about Donald Trump, like, you know, winning the nomination. This is well before, you know, the, the contest start. And she just laughs. And, and listen, that laugh reflected how a lot of us felt. It was a joke. I, of course, was at CNN. The president of CNN, a man named Jeff Zucker, decides that viewers want to see Donald Trump. And it, it turns out that viewers did want to see him. And so they put him on the telephone, they put him on, they air his rallies, and the ratings showed that. And listen, people wanted to see him because they'd been used to seeing him on The Apprentice. He'd call in on Fox News every once in a while as well. 
And uh, he was this figure that people of a certain age were familiar with. And he would do crazy things, right? He would say crazy stuff. He would give silly nicknames to his opponents. It was like nothing Americans had ever seen in terms of a race for the White House. This guy's nicknaming, you know, Marco, Rubio, Little Marco, or Lion Ted, or whatever. I mean, it's just great. Low energy Jeb. Um, so it's it's just this bizarre circus. It's funny to a lot of people, and you can't take your eyes off it. And you know the ratings showed that that people kind of wanted to see where was this where was this going, and so um, that's you know that was twenty that was twenty sixteen. You move into twenty twenty after this remarkable four years again unlike anything americans have seen he meets with kim, you know kim jong-un for instance all these things that were just forbidden for american presidents to do he does these things uh, you know he goes on twitter he's attacking nancy pelosi he's attacking people from his own party he attacks john mccain who's this american hero um, and then, you know, he dabbles, quite frankly, in racist stereotypes and sort of racist language. And, you know, CNN does what news organizations do, which is hold his feet to the fire, try to make him uh, accountable uh, to voters, expose what he, do, you know, he, he, he says and does on Twitter. And listen, I think there is legitimate criticism about CNN's approach to Donald Trump, and again, I'm going to say this, I don't speak for CNN, and CNN has said, you know, Jeff Zucker, who was president then, had talked about this, that he did regret putting Donald Trump on air as much as he did in 2015 and 2016. And then obviously, once Donald Trump becomes president, uh, and, and listen, that night he was uh, elected, it was a shock to everybody, right? It was a, You probably were at home with your parents and not expecting that, because you know, we in the press, we thought it wasn't that we wanted Hillary Clinton to win. We were relying on polls. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, it was a slim margin, right? It was a toss-up election. And I think we, we, members of the press, whether it's pundits or strategists or reporters, sort of leaned in too heavily to what the polls were saying. And to the idea that, huh, would America really elect someone like Donald Trump, no real experience with foreign policy, domestic policy, the economy, you know, in government in general, would they choose Donald Trump over somebody who did exhibit some sort of background in, in, the, in those things? And so we, we were wrong. I remember that night very clearly. And uh, just the, the feeling of like, huh, we, we really blew this. We got this wrong. And I think the American public, both sides, were shocked, you know, because I remember sitting in meetings, you know, the week or two before the election with Republicans, and they themselves were like, oh, yeah, we know this, what's going to happen here. So, um, you know, 2020 was its own election, lar largely focused on COVID and his handling of COVID. And so here we go again in 2024. Yeah, I've been covering Donald Trump since 2015, right? Well, in some ways since 2012, as you point out. And it's like, he's only, he was a one-term president. And, but we, you know, we're covering him. And listen, I actually think, we obviously don't know what's going to happen in 2024. I think it's going to be another toss-up election. You know, if Donald Trump loses, I think Donald Trump will run again in 2028. Right? You know, as long as he has sort of breath in him, I think he's going to be toying with this idea of becoming president again. 
it's crazy to me like just hearing this whole narrative because I also remember um the Trump like in 2016 like yeah. laughing with my family thinking oh he didn't when he first decided to run we're right like, oh there's no way yeah yeah he's yeah. a yeah. businessman he has no experience yeah. in politics like he was considered this joke like kind of celebrity like and it's just so interesting to see how like that then ended up to him becoming president of mm-hmm. the United States mm-hmm. and like it seems like it feels like he was constantly this joke, but at the same time, he gathered, like, such a following. And I'm curious, like, from you, like, from a journalistic perspective, witnessing everything yeah. that was happening, like, how, like, or where did the media go wrong? And, like, yeah. the people, like, how did this happen, like, yeah. from your perspective of just, like, being there, like, witnessing this whole thing? You know, I think... Journalists live in a bubble. Journalists live primarily in New York, in Washington, D.C. The, the folks who cover national campaigns and politics in Washington, D.C. And, and part of it, you know, when I was coming up, and, and certainly years before I was coming up, papers like the Baltimore Sun or the Miami Herald or Newsday or the Los Angeles Times or the Boston Globe, these were big, huge papers, the Dallas Morning News. These are big, huge papers where you would want to go and spend your whole career. And the reason you would want to go spend your whole career there was because they had bureaus everywhere. They had big DC bureaus. They had foreign bureaus. That doesn't happen anymore, right? A lot of it, these places have shrunk. You know, the internet is part of that, and people don't read in the same way that they do. They get their news on Facebook or or, or Twitter or whatever. Um, So journalists aren't out in the world enough, right? You might drop in for a story on Pennsylvania. You might drop in on a story in Detroit because you're doing a story in Michigan. Um, We're just not out there enough. And and listen, even if we were out there a lot, the problem is the core of journalists, particularly, uh, particularly a political journalist, very white, very upper class, very much based on the East Coast, right? And, um, you know, there are not a lot of people who grew up in working class Pennsylvania, you know, in Pittsburgh, not in Philly, but in Pittsburgh. Um, And so that's a that's a problem. And it's reflected in our coverage. You can sort of see it on on the air. Right. Of, you know, just Google, Google the backgrounds of the people who bring you the news. They very likely went to very elite schools um, on the East Coast and probably grew up in the suburbs. They didn't grow up in rural, you know, Pennsylvania or South Carolina. I happen to grow up in rural South Carolina, but never mind. Um, um, so yeah, that, that's a real problem. And so what happens is there's a kind of group think that sets in. And, and you, again, this happened again in 2022. The same, and I, you know, I was sort of there as it was happening. Oh, there's going to be a red wave. There's going to be a red wave. Nobody cares about abortion. It's over. It's like, Really, guys? Like, what are we, are you, and the other thing I think is oftentimes for people who say you grew up in the suburbs, you went to Georgetown or some other elite school, very likely your circle of friends and family looks like that too, right? So you probably don't even know somebody who's in the military. You don't know somebody who's a truck driver. You don't know somebody who works at Walmart, right? 
you know, maybe it's your cousin's 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 son-in-law's stepson or something, but it's not somebody you're regularly in touch with. So you don't really have a sense of what's going on in the country for ordinary people who are struggling with the price of gas, the price of a dozen eggs, childcare, and are, are looking at the abortion decision and, and wondering, huh, what does this mean for the direction of the country more generally? And so again, we got it wrong in, in 2022 because I think we're in this siloed sort of DC to New York corridor of in conversation. It's very elite. It's sort of New York Times, New Yorker kind of audience. And um, I think there we've suffered both in 2016 and uh, in 2022. Yeah, I think that that sense that the news only represents the elite definitely yeah. leads people to turn to more partisan fringe outlets and then only continue to feed into the cycle of getting the news what they want to hear. What do you see as the solution to this? How do we fix these demographics? What does the future of news look like? You know, I I wish I knew. I mean, I think we're grappling with that very immediately in terms of uh, a loss in readership, a loss in viewership. I was meeting with somebody from the LA Times a couple of weeks ago, and he was just saying, yeah, people aren't reading the paper anymore. When I grew up, there was the Columbia Record and the state newspaper. There were literally two papers that my parents got. All sorts of magazines, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, Ebony, Jet, none of these really exist anymore. Uh, you know, these print outlets were slow to realize what was happening with the internet. You know, I saw this while I was at the Washington Post and, uh, you know, I, I was there in, you know, 20, 20, the 2010s and it was still like, oh, we're not really sure what, you know, are we just giving this away for free and then we're charging for the paper? That doesn't seem to make sense. Um, it's a real question. I, I mean, listen, I think Americans more generally are very segregated racially, regionally, um, and economically. And that's just a fact. You know, people kind of talk about the good old days when Americans were, oh, we're all together. It's like, when was that? Was that the 60s? Was that the 70s? Was it the 50s? Like, tell me when, you know, there was this, uh, you know, united kind of culture and experience among Americans. It just hasn't happened ever, I would say. You know, there were moments, you talk about the shuttle disaster or 9-11, uh, certainly, Americans rally if there's a foreign uh, war and or, you know troops are involved, but um, it's a very very hard question because again it gets at the root of the separation of Americans more generally among all those lines we talked about, and so unless you can you know cure that you know what has ailed Americans uh, for for centuries, it it seems very hard to to really kind of figure out how you can build a media outlet, whether it's print, magazine, or, or um, online, or, or, or cable news network, I don't, I don't know how you do it. I really don't know how you do it. But, but that's what you guys are here for. You're going to figure it all out, right? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> We're trying. Yes, yes. Um, and with that, on a more lighthearted note, we want to move on to this is a fly tradition yeah. where we do a lightning round where we just ask you fun quick answered questions and so our first question is you were a literature major i was yeah in college so what is your favorite book it's probably jamaica kincaid's lucy 
uh, which I haven't read in a really long time. Uh, and I, I probably, you know, so yeah, I'd say that. Okay, our next question is, you have a toddler, you have a three-year-old. Um, what did you want to be when you were growing up? What did you want to be when you were three? I, so, it, I don't know that I knew this word when I was three, but by the time I was like four or five, I really wanted to be a paleontologist because I was obsessed with dinosaurs. Um, so, Aww. yeah, that was that was. What, what was your favorite dinosaur? So, I liked, you know, probably like, you know, back then there were really only eight dinosaurs, right? Like, no, there are hundreds now. You know, I like the Brachiosaurus, which was different than the Brontosaurus. It has like a little thing and uh, on, on the top of its head. So I, I like that one because it was like unique and, and people hadn't really heard of it. It was like the T-Rex and the Stegosaurus. Triceratops, also amazing. Um, but yeah. And obviously you've been covering politics for quite some time now and a lot <laughs> yes. of people. But... In the future, who's somebody that you would really want to cover? So the person I think is really fascinating in politics is really the two senators from Georgia, uh, Ossoff and Warnock, I think are amazing, um, really fantastic politicians. And some of it is, I'm obviously a Southerner and I'm sort of biased towards Southern politicians. Um, So I think those between the two of them, they have a real high ceiling in terms of where they can go. Yes, you know. I'm from Atlanta. It's very interesting to watch yeah. those two elections going on yeah. recently. Yes. Yeah. Um, we want to thank you so much for this coming on. This was a great interview. Um, we had such a great conversation, and we really want to thank you for your time. Thank you so much. It was great to be with both of you. It was so nice meeting you, Mia. Thank you so much again. All right. Y'all have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kenneth Jackson, Julian Zeitlinger, Abigail Asadi, and Chase Dobson. Our communications team is Andrea Smith, Austin Culpepper, Darius Wagner, and Sarah Sperdlov. Our production team is Will Hayes and David Grice. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Eng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of the Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon.